everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of Adventures in Dialogue. My name is Melissa, and there is a cool pattern that seems to be developing. Every interview I've done so far sparks an idea to build an ongoing conversation. So in the last episode I did, I talked with Owned Wellness founder Stephen Smith about regenerative systems, and it started to open a technology conversation. We were talking about you know, sort of the new developments that are happening, and we're certainly staring down the corner of some pretty big changes. So I immediately thought of my friend Leith Azam, who I've worked with at Y Media Labs, and who is a systems-based thinker, designer, and developer. We regularly have conversations about sort of systems development, and I always appreciate the rigor he brings to ideas about building a sustainable and ethical technology future. So I thought he would be a great person to have on. As always, the conversation is somewhat high level. And in this one, we venture a bit into talking about spirituality and religion. I myself am not a religious person, but I enjoy exploring different types of belief systems because there always seems to be threads of commonality. Anyhow, we touch on NFTs, the future of Web3, and what the metaverse means for accessibility. And my favorite theme throughout the conversation is drawing parallels between decentralized technology systems and systems found in nature. This is all in hopes of creating a more equitable future for more people. And that's what I think we'll start to see as we go forward. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much, Laith. We're here talking today about NFTs and just the evolution of Web3 and technology. There's obviously a lot happening in the space these days, and your point of view is so impressive working with you at YML. And I feel like you always are ahead in terms of thinking about how you know technology is evolving and how it evolves um, from a systems-based perspective. So I'd love to start with an introduction about First, how do you pronounce your last name? Yeah. Uh, well, I think in America, a lot of people say Azam. That's like okay. the phonetics here. Overseas, you'll hear Azam. Okay. Um, so either way, I'll respond to and either way, I respect, you know. Cool. I would love to hear just your background and how you got into technology. And I know we've talked before about how you're into gardening and planting and, and just, you know, how those two things kind of merge. Definitely. Yeah. So my name is Laith. And again, talking about YML, it's been a really amazing opportunity to work with such like an incredible range of people and all coming together, kind of like trying to solve this similar goal. Um, and I think that's what's really incredible about not only the company we're working for, but just this space in general. Um, I think a lot of this transition like into this new space is kind of rooted in that thinking Mm -hmm. Um, and there's kind of both sides of that. It's rooted in this thinking of community and growth and building these technologies to like really like create these new experiences for different people. And I think that that's, what's like incredible about the opportunities here within this space and within like that level of thinking on the flip side, I think there's a lot of people that attack technology with this like mindset that like, it is kind of like this independent thing and that it's like creating silos and kind of removing this communal aspect but that's like never what I've seen all the way from the beginning. So yeah, I've been into technology as long as I can remember. The concept of the internet and what it can do for us has been something that's like I've grown up with. 
Um, I was born in 91, so I've seen kind of both sides of this spectrum of, you know, having to do a book report at school, having to go to a library, finding information there. Um, and then this like kind of evolution of what is Wikipedia and is this like a real source of truth? Like, can we trust it? Um, so I think living through that time frame has kind of been the core pillar of my existence and my thinking. Um, and it's just something that I've always, I think about with everything, you know, no matter what it is, um, you can kind of apply this systems level thinking to every aspect of life. And that's what I like to do, whether it's um, solving a problem or interacting with people or growing plants. Uh, it's all this like system, you know, it's all part of a greater system, which is like borderline spiritual, but it's all rooted in technology. And at the end of the day, people, this technology has always like brought me together and closer to other communities and other people. I'm always working on these things with other minds. Like that's, what's so incredible. I would say about this conversation is we come from very different backgrounds, um, but we're attacking the same exact problem. Um, and it's just been enlightening to have these conversations. So yeah, excited to be here and keep chatting this stuff through. Cool. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so just to recap on YML or why media labs were, uh, digital innovation agency. So building websites, apps, and digital experiences. And the way Lath and I have worked together is on different um, projects, thinking about how to organize and develop content uh, within a design environment. And so we've had several discussions about how to organize systems in better ways, um, both on the design and technology front, and then just larger societal implications for perhaps better organization and thinking through the concept of regeneration within a tech technology context, things like that. So the other thing I wanted to ask you is what were your first memories of technology or kind of your first experiences with technology? Yeah, definitely. That's like a pretty easy question for me to answer. I would say it's rooted in gaming. So my dad was born in the Middle East. He moved to the United States when he was 17. I'm um, a little bit of an interesting perspective just from his point of view, which I think is incredible. And it's kind of shifted my perspective on just like life in general is when he moved to the United States up until he was 17, he lived without electricity. So their entire town, they were just functioning off a of very primitive technology. So he moved to the United States. And when he moved here at 17, it was the first time he had like lights in his house. So that perspective of someone being raised um, in one environment and then shifting to another environment and learning to adapt was something that just like blew my mind when I learned about that, like that he was able to do that. Um, and because of that, it um, when he moved to the United States, he got very interested in technology and computers, like the fact he could turn on a light and he saw what it was like before that and what this light can now do. A part of that is two of, my, um, two of his sisters are deaf mutes. Um, so they can't talk and they can't hear. And what he did was after coming to the U.S. and he found out about lights, as soon as he went back the first time, he installed two lights in the house. Um, and what they became were the doorbell. Um, mm. Because previously, when people were at the door, his sisters had no way of knowing someone was there. So what he did was install two lights that when people would get to the front door, they can switch the lights. And since they could see, they can know that someone was at the front door. So that was like solving just this problem we take for granted, but it was something that technology was able to allow. So that level of thinking is just the way that I think about technology every day. But then what is the future? Like, how can we apply this technology to change, you know, people's experience in moving forward? So with my dad being so into computers, I was lucky enough to be around them growing up. 
um, in the first form of media that really caught my attention was gaming. Um, and this was before the internet, so that's when games were very... They were siloed. You were kind of just playing by yourself. But that's when games kind of had a different level of communication. Like, the creators of those games knew that people were playing them by themselves, so the games had to be doing something specific, and it was telling stories. So that's what always, like, was interesting about gaming, was it was a way to move through a story and experience someone's perspective. Um, And then early on in my life, the internet came around. And then once you put the internet into gaming, it completely changes. It's no longer just about experiencing the story by yourself. It's about experiencing the story with another set of people. Um, So very early on, I just remember logging into this world, basically, and being able to interact and talk with other people. And we were playing these games, and there was problems, right? That's what a game is, is there's a problem in front of you, and you're working with other people to solve it. And that's what just really attached me to that community and culture was through gaming. Um, I was pretty young, so the problems that I was, and I was, I will say I was pretty privileged, so the problems that I was needing to face were gaming, and I'm lucky to be able to have that experience. But the perspective it gave me, I think, was uh, pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. And I know you mentioned your family being into gardening and... Going back to my dad's family is... I mean, back home, in, so he's from Jordan, and um, back there, our family's still, they're based in agriculture. That's their livelihood and existence. Going way, way back, my dad's, uh, my dad's dad, my grandfather, and his dad, so my great-grandfather, he was mm-hmm. basically responsible for kind of developing this land way, way, way back. The government gave him some land and said, hey, you can go out there and basically develop a city if you want. Um, so that's what he did. So because of that, our family was responsible for really just generating food for this community <clears throat> and it grew out from there. So the, that's the the core foundation of where my like lineage is from. Um, and then moving here, my dad definitely never lost that. Growing up, we always uh, were lucky enough to have a backyard and that backyard was always filled with, you know, plants. And those were the things that we were eating to fuel, you know, our family. So that was another thing that like kind of raised me was on this idea that you can become self-sufficient. Like, when you're in it, you think that that's kind of like everyone's experience, um, and then not everyone has that experience. Um, so just having that, I'm so grateful for it. Um, and now my sister, she has two kids, and I can like see that importance because my dad will just be out there in the garden with them, like teach them, like, hey, this is where carrots come from, you know, and like this is how herbs grow, and this is how we could use them, and it's very systematic, you know, and it's fuel, and that's all it is. We're fueling us, so it's yeah, that's the perspective I've had on plants. Yeah, I mean, I just really like that you have, your family has been kind of rooted in both sides of sort of this physical environment and this more technology-based environment and how that's influenced you as a developer. And um, But I know that your expertise goes beyond just development because you hug the design side as well. So you're kind of this bridge between development and design. Again, why I think, you know, you have such a unique perspective is because you're um, able to kind of bridge two worlds within the work that you do and uh, just the way that you talk and think about things. So mm-hmm. getting into the Web3 discussion, uh, for anybody that doesn't know, I'm going to try to give it a really basic definition, but it's essentially, you know, the sort of third wave of technology where the first wave uh, was really just about getting the internet to work. Uh, and the second wave, which has been the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, perhaps, where 
probably closer to 15, where it's just been a lot of production of now we have all these technology tools, we have the internet, and now it's a, a lot about making things and making things quickly and just a lot of rapid experimentation and iteration. And I think, you know, culturally, and what I've been seeing on sort of the more human front is that we're moving into this third wave where it's about like, okay, we know that we can build all these things. We know we have a lot of different types of sophisticated technology, but what do we, what's intentional about what we want to build and how do we want to create more, you know, how do we want to think through sort of the consequences of what we're building in a more thoughtful and thorough way? And again, I think it's hard for any one human to do that, but I think together as this, you know, when a lot of different people are bringing their expertise to the table, that's when you can get that sort of bigger brain and sort of group, uh, you know, collective intelligence around, you know, what the future of technology should be. And uh, I'll let you go into more of the technical side, but from what I understand, just from, you know, just a very basic five-year-old definition is that Web3 is the evolution of some newer technologies that are bringing that network thinking to life, such as uh, blockchain and uh, NFTs, which we'll get into. Is that is that accurate to say, or I'd love to hear your perspective and a little bit more depth on that. Yeah, so Web1, Web2, Web3, yeah, great overview. I am definitely not an expert on any one of these, on Web1, Web2, or Web3. I think I have an understanding of each of them. I could kind of go through that real quick. Web1, like you said, kind of just getting the architecture up and running of people interacting over that channel. I think that's very clear and defined. Um, Web2, I think the biggest thing that came out of it for me was this concept of an API. And what an API is, is the ability to like talk with other applications. So Web1, you had like Craigslist or you know, these applications where they're very siloed and that information was kind of, and the experience was kind of restricted to them. And then Web2 was a lot of companies opening up and allowing you to, you know, have access to their code base in a way that allows you to like create on their ecosystem without being in their ecosystem and you could pull from their ecosystem. So this kind of give and take model. Um, I think what came from that was a centralized data model. We started sharing these experiences And then the value we started seeing was that data, was that in-between piece, right? When you connect to each other, what is shared between the two? And the Web 2 version is a centralized version of that data storage. So then Web 3 is kind of evolving that, in my opinion, that storage model. So you have these APIs and we have these companies that are now talking to each other, but they're basically fighting for like ownership of our data. And we're the ones using these kind of connections. And I think what Web3 is, is the evolution of this model where instead of, you know, Facebook or these Google or Amazon owning your data with a decentralized model in Web3, you're going to interact with these companies, but you'll retain ownership of that data. Um, And I think that's valuable because right now this like data war is pretty damaging kind of to the average uh, person that's interacting with it. And without like knowledge of these systems uh you're kind of just at will of these companies so that's what web3 is going to allow um, fundamentally it's going to allow data to be owned by the correct people um, and the correct people when i say that i get back to like nature like when we think of like nature these systems are scalable when you think of soil like soil is literally a system that gives to plants but like it has to take from somewhere it's not this economy that can just keep giving and giving and giving 
And right now, that's kind of where Web2 has gotten to, where we're in this economy where each of these businesses understand everyone so well that they're kind of, they're able to take advantage of each person and their data. Um, so Web3 provides two things. One, it gives individuals the ability to understand this. It's going to give us like platforms where we can manage these like data points and like through systems, we're going to be able to use them in a valuable way. So there's a system called um, Bat, and Bat is like a blockchain, and Bat is ran by this company called Brave, and Brave is a browser. What they're doing is they're trying to rethink the way that the advertising model is handled. And right now, the way it works is these big companies kind of own all that data. They're going to mine it and then serve you ads based off of what they know about you. With this system, the way it works is creators are able to own their content and viewers are able to own their data. And directly, we can just be giving straight to the content creators and the content creators can be giving back straight to their viewers. So it kind of removes this middle layer. And fundamentally, that's going to be the big shift in kind of Web3. Okay, cool. So just a quick overview. Web1, again, is this, you know, one-way conversation between the user and the quote-unquote internet. Web2 is a little bit more of a dialogue model between users and still the internet, but now the internet is talking to each other and uh, whoever's developing code and, and API and technology can now create more links and more uh, nuanced conversations. And then Web3 is moving to just a very, almost like a flat model and much more dynamic where, um, and, and again, from the technology side, if you're describing it as more networked communication, I think on the cultural side, we can sh- certainly see that as well, because now conversations are l- much less linear. We are getting so much information and we're having a million different types of bite-sized conversations all over the place as just the way that we've started to kind of process and interact with information on the front side. So I think this is all kind of tracking in in terms of, you know, evolutionary behavior in sort of a digital environment. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, thing, oh, go ahead. Yeah. One word. Yeah. One word I like to use for web three is democratic. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that's truly what the system is is it allow it technologically allows groups of people to have a really democratic experience. And it's something where centralized systems have the ability to be manipulated by greed or corruption. And theoretically, these decentralized systems, when created right, and when they're created appropriately, they don't allow uh, that to seep within it. There's this concept that Bitcoin was built on and it's validate, don't trust. And that's kind of this concept that these systems are built in a way where you don't have to trust these individuals or entities. It's validation along the way. And that's truly what allows like a democratic system to exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so with the privacy angle, from my understanding, and again, you can correct me if, if this isn't accurate, it's an open system where the ledgers or the records are open for public viewing. So they're transparent. It's a transparent record-keeping system. However, the data itself is anonymous. So that is the sort of privacy element. Is that correct? Or how would is there another uh, way to look at that? Yeah, that's definitely something I'm not an expert on. But my high-level knowledge is there's, there's public and private blockchains. 
mm. in the sense where data can be mass. So I think that that's where governance becomes important. So there's instances, like if you think of healthcare, your health records, you wouldn't want everyone to be able to read your health records. So it'd be great to have a system where those records are private and where you can own them. Um, so that's what NFTs solve. Right now, we're living in this world of NFTs being really trendy in the art world. And it's another valuable um, execution of NFTs. I'm a huge believer in art. I went to art school. I think it's we're like rapidly progressing towards another renaissance era if we're not already like smack dab in the middle of one. Um, so I think there's huge value in art because what it does is communicates culture and messaging. So people being able to own that artwork and like basically invest in that artwork, I think is great for these messaging. So art is a valuable use case of NFTs because now what you can digitally do is own these pieces of artworks. People have this argument that you can just like right click and save as like, cool, you can definitely do that. You could also take a picture of the Mona Lisa and hang it up on your wall, but that doesn't mean you like own it. So that's the, the kind of the NFT for the art world. But if you think of NFTs for healthcare, you also want to be able to own your healthcare records. And then going back to public and private, those shouldn't be able to be accessed by anyone. Um, so those can be built on a private chain where only someone who owns it, like an NFT, would be able to access it. Um, I think what this does is it adds a lot of responsibility. So that's the flip side to this Web3 technology. But I am excited about it. The same way fast food, you know, it's not always been viewed the same way it's been viewed now. There was a time when the responsibility to understand nutrition labels was kind of like on the government. We kind of like expected these entities to like tell us what was right. Um, but now we know it's like on us to look at nutrition labels and understand what we're consuming that's the same exact thing with this technology is Web3 will allow us to basically read a nutrition label um, and kind of make informed decisions. But again, that's going to be a responsibility that each individual is going to have to, you know, take the charge on. And so for people that don't necessarily want to manage that level of detail, what becomes their option for, <laughs> you know, still providing a safe environment for their data and maybe being a little bit more hands off? Yeah, definitely. So when I think of just like health in general, right, if you are struggling with anything, you're going to either one, have to kind of handle it for yourself or two, find a service or an individual or someone to kind of allow you to do that. Um, so then when we talked earlier about Brave Browser kind of creating this coin um, bat to solve this advertising layer, that's kind of what they're doing is they make that interaction pretty usable. Um, and I think that that's right now the Web3 challenges is how do you create these layers that make these new uh, behaviors like managing your basically your digital nutrition? Like, what are those solutions? And I think there's huge opportunities right now for incredible companies to be the, you know, the headspace, uh, for lack of a better term, of digital you know, data. Um, how do you manage your thoughts? You know, how do you manage your access to your your basically digital DNA. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of huge opportunities right now for companies to be building and managing those things for people. Um, right now, it is kind of difficult. If you want to manage each of these things, you have to be kind of deep within it. But I would say that anything you're truly interested in, just kind of Google search. Like, what is the blockchain? What is the NFT version of this? If you're into real estate, um, owning a house can be on these ledgers. If you're into 
uh, healthcare, if you're into really any world, you can find the blockchain or NFT version of your your model, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I've been thinking a lot about just from a writer's point of view, it seems like an NFT could actually be a good solution for, you know, because I, I want my writings to be distributed, but I also want to, you know, retain sort of the ownership of the writing at some level. Um, and I'm, I'm, I don't know, like, to what level I would want to monetize any writings, but just to have the certificate to say that this was an, or, an original work or this came from me um, would be a nice thing to be able to do. And is that something that you could use an NFT for or is it? Absolutely. And yeah, on that note, um, there's two companies right now that I've been recently exposed to. One is Foundation App mm-hmm. and then the other one is Mirror.xyz. And Mirror.xyz is exactly what you're talking about. They're a publishing platform on blockchain. Um, so after this, definitely check them out. I think you're going to really enjoy them. Um, and what's great about Mirror and Foundation is I got interested into them because they're pushing the lines of what a an NFT contract can be. And they're pushing it by creating this concept of a split contract. Um, so right now, when we think about NFTs and ownership, um, before splits, it was one person and one entity that owned this thing. Um, with splits, what it can be is multiple entities own a single like kind of chain or a block on these chains. Um, so what that means is every time it's sold, funds are distributed to these different entities programmatically. There's no, you can't uh, fake it. So the low level or the low hanging fruit, in my opinion, of these split contracts is partnering with uh, organizations that are doing great things for causes. So if you have a writer that's out there writing about this cause, they should be splitting that contract with this organization that is also fighting for that cause. So that way, if you do sell these works of art, you're generating revenue as the artist, and then also some of that money is going towards these like organizational causes. So that's run really great use of split contracts. The second one is just collaborating. Um, so like right now on our centralized platforms like Instagram, Twitter, what you have are massive followings for each of these creators. And when they create something, like who owns that? And how do you distribute likes or following or whatever that trickle-down economics is for contributing? And what splitting does is now you can technologically be creating things with other people together and the technology distributes those funds because they know that these are the collaborators and the contributors. So Mirror is incredible. They're handling blockchain, um, owning publications, kind of the same way Medium is. And Medium is simply the centralized version. So when you publish on Medium, Medium is owning your data and the reader data. And it's worked up until this point. I appreciate Medium a lot. Um, But now when I go to Medium, I have to pay to read it, which I appreciate. I appreciate supporting these creators, and it's, it's something I enjoy doing. But I also appreciate Mirror's version where... They're allowing uh, the creators to own this content because it's theirs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a huge trend in sort of this third version of the internet is putting creators in ownership of their work. And that's the creator's economy is a huge buzzword as well. But just I I think the a lot of the bigger platforms do recognize that without the creators, the platform's suffer. And so, again, we're just talking about more ways to 
distribute, uh, for lack of a better word, wealth across other parts of the economy instead of it always leading up to sort of a center point at the top. And even though, you know, those, you know, traditional business models have improved over time in terms of paying creators more money, things like that. But if we're thinking through the triple bottom line lens of people, planet and profit, profit still has to get produced, but it's just about how that profit gets managed and how it gets distributed. And if it's, you know, I think the, again, the beauty of a free market system is that it, it can be a democratic system because it's the ideas that are generating the momentum. And if it's an idea that serves a lot of people's needs in a positive way, that can be a really profitable model. So, um, but again, then with sort of the decentralized lens on top of that, now we're moving into a space where we're not getting these huge concentrations of top-sided wealth that just start to create huge disparities for the rest of the population. It, it becomes more of a distributed wealth model through the power of commerce, through the power of business. Of course, I think there is a role for government here. I I don't know exactly what it is. I don't, I think our current set of representatives probably need to get a bit more up to speed on what's happening in the technology industry. But, you know, I think there's a, a balance, an opportunity for balance here between sort of regulation and market freedom. So... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when you mention government, let's stay as far away from politics as we can with this. But at the end of the day, that's like what this comes down to is these systems allow uh, for governance. Uh, that's a huge word when it comes to these kind of NFT communities. Um, it's all about creating this economy where that economy, like you said, can be governed by the community. And the one word that I also want to highlight that you said is more And that's an important word because, like you said, we're getting more towards non-top-heavy systems. But it's important to realize that there still are a lot of these systems that are top-heavy, even in this Web3 world. Um, So even I'm very critical and uh, just trying to be extra conscious when it comes to creating these organizations and these systems. So making sure that they are even more and more and more like less top heavy because mm-hmm. it's just hard to be conscious of that when you're kind of in it. Yeah. Well, and I think that just comes down to people deciding it's regeneration is a great model because it applies across so many different industries. And I'm just starting to learn about this, but I, it sounds like the promise of regeneration is that um, it can be achieved within a generation. And so it it really is that systems thinking that has to be applied to all these different business endeavors because without going too far down this rabbit hole, we can create a prosperous economy when more wealth is distributed further and people feel motivated to be engaged in their work. That creates a much more pleasant environment than what we currently have where we have a lot of division, polarization, people feeling burnout, things like that, where it doesn't matter if you are kind of at the top of the pile, your quality of life also goes down because you're surrounded by a culture of sort of desperation and things like that. And I mean, that's 
becoming a very clear theme here in San Francisco, where the city is just experiencing a lot of um, turmoil right now in terms of people feeling desperate. And there's definitely a political component to the sort of laws that we have in place. But I think the bigger picture is that there is just a lot of hopelessness on the streets and that is because if you if there aren't more widely distributed opportunities for people to engage in life and feel that they can really truly move up a ladder uh, without climbing an olympic sized mountain then you know i think you see different results and i think you see more nourishing economies pop up yeah <clears throat> yeah yeah definitely right now i think we're in one of the most difficult environments i think for humans and technology to exist together mm-hmm. i think right now it is so just mentally um exhausting with the way that these models have kind of pushed society in i can't talk enough about the the good and bad of these systems um i was in silicon valley from like 2009 to like 2015 and arguably was you know, piece of a lot of these puzzles. And at the beginning, I had one view on it. And I think a lot of people that were building the systems had one view on it. Um, And where, you know, the system, the greater system has allowed these systems to get is definitely, uh, it's a rough one. Um, But again, I always get back to the fact that we're allowed to have this conversation right now, like is, I'm literally blessed that we can take the time to do this. But that's what I'm like hoping to be able to talk about, allowing everyone, no matter where they're at, to kind of see something from a different angle or just attack it a different way. And I will say that like my high level opinion is you're not going to be able to find these things kind of on the current landscape of social media. You kind of got to like be looking beyond the things we're doing right now. So if you're anyone is ever like listening to this and kind of, it feels like they're in that place. I would just try and look for somewhere brand new, like go on Google and just start typing in words that, you know, you're interested in trying to find links. And every time you find yourself kind of in a social media channel and just reading a bunch of people's opinions that may or may not matter, I would kind of try to remove yourself from that and just go for a walk, take a breath (laughs) and then come back and then just start reading kind of stuff you know, rooted in something more than uh, just a lot of people's ideas. And I know that might be weird coming from someone who's just sharing their ideas, but yeah, if anything, reach out to me, reach out to Melissa and we'll get in a room and we'll just have a talk about whatever it is. I think that like, that's the most important piece is just finding like that community and those groups of people that are able to, you know, talk about the things you want to talk about. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have, felt some bouts of overwhelm in the last couple of weeks around, uh, you know, it, I mean, this is just the times that we're in, right? Sometimes I'm the, it's fine and, and able to move through the week. Great. And then other weeks are just kind of like, Oh my God, what is going on in the world? And yep. it's kind of this constant toggle between, wow, we just are really up against a lot. And then, you know, I think my solace is always in nature is that's my number one go-to as far as when I'm feeling overwhelmed getting outside because I just, you know, at this point I've read enough, but even before 
studying more around natural systems, just, I think it's very intuitive. The feeling of being in nature is you're surrounded by an intelligence that we just, you know, we, we do have a lot of understanding about, but we have so much more to learn and there's incredible natural intelligence available in the natural environment that you don't even have to process it in your mind, but just being among uh, trees and, and nature, whatever, even if it's just getting onto a piece of lawn and getting your feet and hands in the ground, it's like those types of things, I think just bring, bring me back to center. And, you know, the other thing that I do constantly search for are other perspectives on kind of like the spiritual aspect of life. And that's taken me into all kinds of realms of different belief systems. And I'm really curious about how people talk about their beliefs and their more spiritual or religious beliefs, because I think underneath all of it, it there is a really common theme around just being able to feel that you're perhaps part of something bigger. And so I really hesitate and I struggle to talk about it in spiritual terms because I feel like anytime I use any sort of descriptor or word in any direction, it's immediately sort of categorizing that type of thinking into one direction or another when I'm really, it's, it's, I guess the same feeling I have being outside with reading about another person's true experience of life is just like, there's a, to me, that's the way to connect kind of like what we're all dealing with and we express it in a lot of different ways. And again, I think that's what gets really confusing is that the language around these experiences feels so different and that is what is creating the polarization. But the actual essence of what people are experiencing is really, really similar. And so I think what has helped so much in training my mind and my heart in terms of trying to listen to the sort of the underlying need is just continuously exposing myself to perspectives that aren't intuitively ones I would, might gravitate towards. And because I'm trying to listen for like the grain of commonality with like another perspective, you know, and it's, it's just, I think this practice of exposing ourselves to different ways of thinking, it's super uncomfortable especially at first, you know, but the more that we can kind of take in a variety of perspectives, I think, again, that common thread starts to reveal itself. So yeah, just saying that in this polarized and charged environment where mm -hmm. a lot of people aren't feeling safe. And so mm -hmm. what are the ways that we can start to create systems where people feel safe? And I think that you know, financial safety is a big thing. And when you, you know, constantly engage in a system where it feels like that level of wealth floats to the top and then gets exported out of the country or, you know, and people can do whatever they want with their money, quite honestly, but it's just, how do we distribute more to more people? Because there's a lot of people that need more resources and more opportunities, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Greed is, one of the most negative, I would say, human emotions. I mean, there's the seven deadly sins. That's one of them. Um, when you talk about like religious or, you know, spirituality, um, the more I've gotten into these systems in code, the more I've started leaning towards like some level of 
spirituality or understanding of religion. Um, I, I like thinking and talking about them quite a bit. Um, my background's a little bit interesting. My mom's family, they're from LA. Um, she grew up very, they're Jewish. Uh, my grandpa's last name is Katz and my dad grew up in the Middle East and he's Muslim. So having that internal, um, I, I don't know what you call that. Um, I wasn't raised religious by either side. Um, we weren't practicing growing up. But if I ever had questions, um, I could ask them. And if I ever wanted to learn more, um, I did have the internet. So um, knowing that part of my family was one way and the other side of my family was another way, I did do a lot of research, you know, growing up and seeing the commonalities between the two. I think that's when you are understanding spirituality. Um, when you're looking at all religions, I think from this system standpoint, it just becomes incredibly clear you know, what, to me, clear what this bigger picture is. Um, I see the biggest picture being spirituality, and then under spirituality of religions, and religion is a piece of spirituality, and there's multiple religions, and each of those are a piece of spirituality. So my perspective on it is to say that there isn't a God would be insane. To say that we're all just existing in something that <clears throat> is not a system would be insane. Like I can't imagine a world where, you know, there isn't a God where it's just free reign and nothing is in governing or nothing is responsible for anything. But at the same time, I don't conform to a singles religions view of God. If we were to conform to, you know, a capitalistic view of God, that God is generally rendered and generally rendered. So you can profit off of it. So that's when you try to like make God this tangible or this real thing that you can hold or touch or see or feel, that's when it becomes a little bit difficult for me to understand. So that's when certain religions become a little bit strange for me. But then other religions, you know, from like the Muslim side, if growing up, I, I had to do a report on my heritage. So in my house, we had uh, pictures. One of them was my grandma. And then like on a different, completely different wall were, um, writings in Arabic and I couldn't read Arabic at the time, but I liked the two like models. So I drew my grandma and then I just looked at a single word on all, like there's tons of words on this wall and one word stood out and I just drew it above her. And I had no idea at the time that I wrote the word Allah above her out of all the words, like, and Allah means God. So mm -hmm. what I'd done is inadvertently rendered God. And when I showed it to my dad, he got a little, he got upset. He was like, no, like you can't, do this, you can't take this, you can't show this. Like, But I had no idea that I wrote Allah, God, over a picture of my grandma. Mm -hmm. And that was like a turning point where, and he just explained to me, like, trying to, like, you're in a weird way saying this is God or this is, but you can't, you can't render it. It's not something that we, but, it, but it's there, mm -hmm. which is, and it's a system. So that's like my view on like the spirituality and religious side of this, where to admit that to say there's not a God would be insane. I remember growing up that I didn't understand what God was. So it was hard for me to say there is one. Mm -hmm. but now for me to say there isn't one would be wild. And for me to say, I know exactly what it is would also be wild, but yeah, there's definitely something out there and we're just a part of that system. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think of it a lot as, because God, I think, has its own sort of like triggering effect on people. and But I agree with you in the sense of 
I think it's pretty hard to deny that there isn't something that's a little bit more to our core uh, expressing itself. And again, I, th- I feel like nature is my biggest parallel to that because just the way that nature comes together and it moves in, it's just a really incredibly sophisticated system. And how did it get there? You know, how did it sort of come about? I just, there is something, and I, I feel it in my own life in terms of just, I've just tried to really follow what feels most right for me in the moment. And sometimes those decisions have been like completely not contextualized at the time and have made no sense at that particular moment. But when I look back, I'm like, I see why I made that decision. It fits into like a bigger, like I was just listening to my heart and it Mm -hmm. was the right decision, you know? And so to me, that's also another big point of access is just particularly with people and, and death and passing into passing through onto whatever the other side is. I'm not exactly sure, but it's just, it's pretty clear that when someone is alive, there is an essence there. And when Mm -hmm. they're not alive, that essence is gone. And so I think that feels to me like a very clear example as well of this sort of essence that we can't really pinpoint, but we know it exists and we know when we feel it and we know when we're connected with another person's essence. Yeah. And I agree. I think it's almost futile to try to like pin it, pin it down or describe it or uh, things like that. When we can, a lot of times we can just trust that it's a, it's something that is present. And I think religion is just a, it's a human mechanism to try to contextualize through stories. So different religions are kind of like different stories in my mind of how to contextualize this bigger experience that a lot of people are having and have had throughout the ages. Yeah. And absolutely. And this concept of like death, right? I, it's an interesting one when you think of art, right? And creating and then culture and this human experience. I we recently watched um, Tick, Tick, Boom, which was it's like a musical. And I'm pretty ignorant to the space, not going to lie. But um, Jonathan Larson is the creator of like Rent and a bunch of other incredible you know, productions. And I hate to say that I was this ignorant, but I just didn't know anything about his passing or his existence. So previously to watching this and consuming, it was kind of like a Schrodinger's cat experience where to me, he was like alive. So that's, what's interesting when we think of like culture and art and creating and messaging and storytelling is it's literally a, that version of, you know, staying alive. Like I was just, again, last night watching the rock and roll hall of fame um, and seeing all these artists and creators that yes, they're gone, but like, they're not, which is also, I think a very interesting piece of all this. And that for me has become like a pretty important driving force. Like now I'm less about consumption and more about just creating just for the fact of Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, to have a certain level of that. Um, if all day all we're doing is kind of, you know, consuming at the end of it, you know, what what's left. So I think that's another important piece of it is just don't be worried to like be expressive or like create or to just share because 
Mm-hmm. At the end of it all, that's really all you're going to have. So yeah, and I think <laughs> what too, you do have isn't going to matter. <laughs> yeah, and I think too, just creating for the sake of creating and not necessarily having to have an end goal, but just that yeah. engagement in the creative process is kind of. I think that that is a spiritual experience, you know. And again, it's so it's so hard. We don't have great language right now for to neutralize this conversation. So I think, you know, kind of have to depend on what's available, but yeah, I mean, that is what, that's what moves our society forward. That's what moves people forward is, you know, creativity. So um, very cool. Well, I want to talk to, I want to get into a little bit around, uh, you know, we know that the metaverse has been revealed (laughs) on a level and mm-hmm. it's coming. Um, you know, I definitely have, we've talked about this too, of just, I know you have a, you know, a lot of experience in the outdoors and things like that. And one way that I sort of balance my technology use and my working in the technology industry is again, with that anchoring in nature and, and wanting to make sure that I'm feeling a lot of the physical world when so much of my work exists in the digital space. And so I'm curious, you know, I just want to talk through a little bit around what, how you're seeing this sort of metaverse come on. And I know that that is pretty much just associated with Facebook. Is that correct? Or is that a bigger, is that meant to involve like a bigger vision of the internet? And how do you see that playing out with the web three discussion we had earlier? Yeah, totally. So um, Facebook did rebrand to Meta, and that is in response to the Metaverse. So the Metaverse, in my opinion, has like almost always existed. I think if we think of the singularity as being like something that can happen and the Metaverse being something that can happen, I think they're both scales of 0 to 100 of like, are we completely in this thing or are we not? Um so when I think of the metaverse, I think of just the digital version of really anything. And when I think about my experience, I've always had kind of digital versions of myself um, through gaming, through social media. If you think about your MySpace page, that was kind of a digital representation representation of yourself. Like your, if you have like a dating profile, if you have a social, like these are all just digital representation representations of yourself. So the metaverse to me has always existed. It's just a different scale now. Mm. So I feel like when we talk about web two and web one, web one, the metaverse was very isolated individual web two, the metaverse started getting more, you know, collaborative. We would, you could, your avatar could be imported across platforms and then Web3 is going to do the same thing, where now you have these items, but then how do you own them? Um, so one like example of the metaverse kind of always existing is through gaming. And a big, pretty big game right now is Fortnite. Um, and that's like a pretty trendy one. Same with like Minecraft or Roblox. And each of these um, games allow you to kind of transform your avatar. You can literally wear clothes. You can buy items to do things in games. Um, so... When we think about the Web3 in the metaverse, what gets interesting is now we have this, one, this technology and this platform to actually own these digital items. So inherently, when it comes to the metaverse, it's about kind of representing you and you need to represent yourself with ownership of these things. Um, So that's just foundationally where NFTs become great in that world is 
how do you create this digital token that any ecosystem can like authenticate and say, okay, you own this item. And now how do we represent that item in our platform and our platform and our platform? So the metaverse on web three becomes just more enabled for, I would say sharing. There's going to be again, less of these like isolated metaverse experiences and then more of like, what do I look like across all these channels or how do I interact digitally with everyone? And then when we think of virtual reality, it's just a very concrete example of the metaverse becoming visually rendered because you're, you're in a world, everything you see is now digital. Um, with AR, um, you're still in your physical world. We're just like kind of putting a layer on top of it. So that's kind of the different levels. There's the physical world. Um, when you think about like using your phone, right? Um, when we're using our phone in the physical world, we're interacting with the metaverse. Um, and I think that that's the one thing I just want to point out is like, mm-hmm. it's not something brand new, but there will be new applications of the metaverse. And when we talk about like the good and the bad of it all, um, again, like with any technology, there's always going to be good and bad. Um, with social media, there's good and bad with, you know, nuclear energy, there's good and bad. So again, with like virtual reality, there's again, going to be good and bad. There's going to be the people that are consuming it incorrectly at first, you know, it's probably not the best way for them to do it. But I think, again, it comes down to that responsibility. And what I think what's interesting about the responsibility is just being able to do it this way. So right now there's, again, we're, again, privileged. We're allowed to have these conversations. We're, we're in a place where we can do things kind of at our own will. Um, a lot of people that don't have access to these things, I think that this technology is just going to give them the ability to, um, And that's just the most exciting thing about this all to me is focusing on the groups of people that are going to be enabled um, versus focusing on the groups of people that, you know, probably are in a place of luxury. For me, those people I'm a little bit less worried about, but what the good it can do for all the people that, you know, can't travel, they can't see something, they can't walk, you know, like someone that has, you know, mental or physical disabilities, um, all these I, that's why I like focusing on the practical applications to getting these people into those experiences that we enjoy. Because again, for me, if I can take, you know, three days to go outside and disconnect from the world and just live in the moment and just breathe, you know, I can't argue how important that is to like my well-being. And then at the same time, I look at all the people that literally just can't even do that. So then how can we create an environment for them to get that experience uh, as well? And that's like, what I'm just the most focused on, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, that's definitely a perspective I hadn't thought about and highlights, you know, my own blind spot around how these types of technologies can enhance other people's experiences. And yeah, I agree. There's definitely, you know, it's, it's all, it's all sort of uh, evolution of where we've come from and it'll be interesting to kind of see I know a lot of brands are already responding to this this new sort of platform or this new way to organize experiences. And so, yeah, well, it'll just, we'll have to all see how it, how it pans out. But Oh, yeah. I'm nothing but excited. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could spend more of my time uh, kind of building in that world. But I would say that, yeah, they're, they're worlds that I haven't, I don't have a lot of hands-on experience with, but... If anyone is listening to this and needs a couple of extra hands, let me know. I would love to help. Cool. Well, is there anything else, Slate, that you you know want to add into the conversation about blockchain, NFTs, or sort of the coming digital experience world? 
Uh, I think I could talk about this stuff endlessly, but I do think that the amount we've covered was a lot of fun. It was uh, quite a journey, and <laughs> yeah, I think trying to add anything else would just be maybe time for a second talk. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I know for a lot of people that aren't in technology, it can feel really confusing and kind of disorienting as these new tools pop up. So just having a bit of uh, clarity and discussion is super helpful. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was, like I said, it's really fun talking about this stuff from such a like a wide ranging perspective. So anytime, and yeah, always happy to have these have these chats. Awesome, thanks, Leith. Thank you, thank you.